It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, L. Joy Williams, and coming to the front of the class is someone who does not need an introduction to a classroom. She's very familiar with that. She's also very familiar with books because this Stay writing. She has a joke that she just told us about what her license plate would be. I would actually change that to sis be writing because she has banger after banger when it comes to books. She's a historian. She's an educator. She's an author. And she was department chair at one particular time. Joining us at the front of the class is Professor Carol Anderson. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, uh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so sis much. Sis be right. I'm going to make you a shirt. I'm going to make you a shirt to say, sis, be writing. Okay, that'll work. <laughs> that'll work. <laughs> I, I've listened to like every one of them because, you know, through my Audible subscription, the ones that are on Audible, and then I have one of them on hard copy. So I just finish them and they're like good reads. They're fast reads. And, but, you know, I feel like I took a whole class with you when I read them. So I appreciate the way in which you write that it's not, you know, putting on airs that is really something that people can understand and understand the whole history and context of. So I appreciate you for that, for the way in which you write, that it is, you know, anybody could pick it up and and really understand. So Professor Anderson, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And so let me just add to that. With my first book, Eyes Off the Prize, The United Nations and the African-American Struggle for Human Rights, when I knew that I had nailed it was when Mr. L, who was part of the village who helped raise me and who came out of the schools of Jim Crow, Georgia, he called me up and he said, ah, baby girl, (laughs) you telling our story. That's what we was up under down there in Georgia. I was like, yes. So all the New New York Times, the Washington Post, none of that matter. Mr. L called you. Called me and said, ah, baby girl. You're telling our story. And that's really, you know, the as I as I tell my my students, my footnotes are for the academy or for the profession. The way that I write the text is for the people. It's so that mm. people understand the fierce urgency of now, the the ways that we got here, how we got here, why we got here. If we got that history that we're making much more informed decisions about what our future looks like. There are very few folks that, particularly in reading in these kinds of genre, talking about rights and constitution and amendment, you know, people always view it as if people are trying to present to you why they're smarter than you, (laughs) rather than writing for you to understand and engage in the conversation. And so you are one of those writers that I absolutely love because you write in that way that it is approachable, it's understandable. And so, you know, I've always wanted to say that to you. I'm happy that I was able to say it to you here in my own space, but thank you so much for that pen that you have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it, it is, it is something that I picked up in my master's program when I was taking a stats class and I was just 
terrified about taking the statistics course. But Professor K's thing was not about showing you how smart she was. It was about making statistics, putting it where you could get to it and make it your own. And pedagogically, you know, the way that you teach, to teach about ways that folks can make it their own, that's when you've done the work. That's when yeah. you've done the work. And so that has been key to my framing of, of this. I can't stand the jargon. I hate it. I, I hate having to translate English. Yes. And that's how we're trained in terms of education, right? Like we're trained in, and, and, and also in this space, in organizing and politics and things, we're also trained not to give too much away, right? Like don't give, don't, don't empower people too much, like, because you need to validate like your position in the world. And it's like, that has always just never sat right with me. It's just like, you know, you give the people enough to move. I was like, why don't you give people enough to do on their own? <laughs> like, why, why I got to be the one, why I got to be all up in the mix? <laughs> you know, and, and so, and this is, this is about, I mean, so you see with my books, Eyes Off the Prize was really about how we ended up with the civil rights movement and not a human rights movement mm-hmm. because black folks had envisioned what human rights would look like as the as the key to equality. This was the discussion happening in the 40s. You know, not just not just the right to vote, but the right to housing, the right to health care, the right to education, the right to, to employment opportunities. Oh my gosh. And so you have to ask yourself, self. So why is it that when Malcolm said it in the mid 60s, folks were acting like this was a revelation and it had never been said before? Just acting brand new. Woo, brand new. And so part of this, this, this discovery was finding out not only was it said in the 40s, but what was powerful enough to create that level, that depth of amnesia in the black community itself. And that's where I, I, I was able to pull apart the Cold War and the second Red Scare that identified these human rights as being communistic, as being un-American, as being the things that the Soviets fight for. And so if you're fighting for that, then you aren't fighting for America. Then you are un-American and we can do to you whatever we want to do to you. Or like now where like every time we talk about that, it's like you're a communist. Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but first, since it's your first time in front of my Sunday civics class, not a yes. class, I'd love to hear the story of your first civic action. Mm. You know, I had to really think about that because there was so much going on in my household. But it was my father was a community activist. And I remember because I could type, typing out his letters to the city council and to the mayor advocating for improvements in our community, seeing the way that government was supposed to respond to its constituencies, seeing that there is a need in this community and this government has a responsibility to meet this need. So there was letters after letters after letters. And I also was able to hear phone calls as well. So that is where my, my, my think about the role of civic engagement comes from needs in the community that the government has a responsibility to meet those needs. I love that story because it reminds me of learning to type with my grandmother. 
on her typewriter and then on, so from the typewriter, then it was the word processor. Mm-hmm. So the word processor is what I had from high school in the, to the beginning of college. Cause when I went into college was right at the point we had like the computer labs. So people didn't have laptops and computers right. in their room when I was in school. Like you went to the computer lab and you fought for dear life for computer time <laughs> during midterms and oh <laughs> like God. all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but, but learning how to type on a typewriter, on a word processor, and my grandmother would type her sermons or her Bible. She founded a Bible college. And so she would also type her notes and everything for Bible study. And so being able to help with that. Oh, that brings back so many memories. <laughs> <laughs> But what an education to young persons such as yourself that you were part with your father writing these letters and then learning that, you know, these are responsibilities that the government has to its people and that I need to communicate them. Mm -hmm. And like, here's a way that I need to, we talk about on this show all the time, you know, people can't represent you if they never hear from you. And so that constant you know, a frame that you need to communicate, whether it's a letter, an email, nowadays a tweet or what have you, to communicate to people who represent you and to the government of what the needs are for your community. What a powerful lesson. Absolutely. I mean, it was, and so, and it was things like, when are you coming to pick up the trash? Right. Right? Some basic stuff. And, and you know, he'd get the, oh, yeah, uh, when were we there last? And he's like, you're supposed to be here now. When are you coming? So making it really clear that these are basic, basic needs mm-hmm. that the government is not fulfilling and that they will be held accountable for not fulfilling those basic needs. I mean, I, yeah. that just, that has echoed throughout my, my lifetime. So I want to get through. And so if you have not, all you have to do is search Carol Anderson wherever you get books <laughs> and you can see her whole shelf of, of books. So I was first introduced, obviously it's a, I don't think it's as widespread, maybe the one on NAACP and colonial liberation. Mm-hmm. And it was because I was looking for books about the sort of early organizing and history of NAACP having, you know, now that I'm president of you know, Brooklyn NAACP and sort of just looking at the context and sort of, you know, what was our history around these? Because I'm not an NAACP baby. I didn't grow up in the association. Mm -hmm. So it was this time in my 20s where I was kind of learning, you know, separate and apart from what we learned from, you know, public school history books. You know, what really is the NAACP history? You seem to have a fondness for this book. I love bourgeois radicals. And I love bourgeois radicals because what it does is it's a history that I didn't know. The, the history that I had had before basically says that the NAACP turned its back on colonial liberation struggles because it had cut a deal with the Truman administration for civil rights. And so when you had folks in Africa and Asia going, yo, we need help, NAACP was like, yo, peace out, brother. And, and that, right. And that was, that was the standard narrative that had been out there for decades that they weren't about it. Well, I was finishing up work on eyes off the prize and I'm in the NAACP records at the library of Congress. And this turning your back was supposedly happened in 1947. 
Mm-hmm. I am in the records and I pull out this letter from a man named Abdullahi Issa, who was the head of the Somali Youth League. And it's 1949, two years after the NAACP supposedly turns its back. And, and Abdullahi Issa is saying, thank you so much for all of your help in keeping the Italians off of us. Thank you for what you did for us in the UN. And I looked at that letter and I said, all right. What? You know, this was something that just wasn't supposed to exist. What's happening here? And that sent me on this trek. And what I found was this incredible rich history about the ways that the NAACP intervened to dismantle the pillars that propped up the so-called white man's burden, that propped up the, the normalization of colonialism. That, that said, you cannot control other folk. You don't have that right. And we're not going to say that you have that right. And so they went after apartheid South Africa for its treatment of what is current day Namibia, but at the time it was Southwest Africa. They went after Italy for Libya, Eritrea, and Somalia. And they went after the Dutch for Indonesia. And they were successful in those battles. And I think that this is an important story to tell because part of it dealt with the vision. Part of what they said is that you cannot take down white supremacy in the United States and think you've done something. You've got to take it apart globally because this is a global phenomenon. We cannot be satisfied with Mississippi if what we still have is Morocco. I was like, wow, wow. Again, the breadth of that vision hadn't been in the historical record. And so bourgeois radicals was doing some heavy, heavy lifting in terms of finding those stories and finding out the implications of those stories and what they meant and the impact that they had and why we didn't get to move further down the path of being able to link up decolonization with human rights so that we had a a different kind of freedom, not just legal freedom, but humanity's freedom. And, you know, that was really important. It was a really important part for me because, you know, I went to Hofstra. The the year I started there was the, I think, the first or the second year that their African-American studies department or program started, right? So it was, you know, the beginnings. And so I always feel like, my experience was a taste of Africana studies, right? <laughs> right. It was a it was a taste, right? Because you're at a primarily white institution. Yeah, you had, you know, black professors who I actually have really great relationships with now, even in my professional career. But it was a taste. Like it wasn't in depth, you know, from, from that standpoint. And so it wasn't until you know, because I have this love of books that I went and devoured everything, you know, around <laughs> yes. me in terms of reading. Yes. Where I learned that like our movements for rice was more than just voting. Oh and yes. I remember, you know, the point where I, you know, found out about the petitions to the UN when I found out about sort of these movements in the 30s and the 40s, you know, of Black people linking struggles together in other parts of the world and other parts of the diaspora and everything. And I was like, whoa, 
<laughs> right? So I was already amazed by the organizing efforts and the pushback of people of African descent in the United States. But then once my mind was open to the fact that it is also not limited you know, to voting and to the United States, it opened up my thought process in terms of political empowerment in a different way. Because then it was less about, I just need to be able to vote and vote freely for people who are presented to me to, I can be, I am participating in this, not only in this government here, but I can have a say, I can have a worldview and have a voice in actually making some of this happen. It completely changed, you know, my outlook on that. And so it then became less about, you know, me trying to chart a course of freedom in, you know, New York <laughs> and more about like, how do we, you know, chart a course of freedom around the world? Yeah. And, and so what I loved about this was how it was the expansiveness of their vision. And it was the belief that they had the power yes. to make that change. So part of the, the bad narratives that we get was that folks were just docile and just took it for so long. And it was only until we get into like the late sixties where folks were radical and said, we're not taking this. And I'm like, you don't understand this history because this history is, is radical because it is about dismantling the structures of systemic inequality, the structures of racism, the structures of white supremacy. Yeah. It, it's like finding out that, you know, for the, you know, that everybody wasn't just going along to get along with being enslaved, that there were <laughs> like people was trying to get free the whole time. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> right, right. Because, right. you know, the regular education will have you believe, oh, and we were just, you know, we were just enslaved and just chilling and just, you know, carrying masses water until one day. Abraham Lincoln freed his way. Right, right. Okay. You know, so I grew up with that narrative, right? That, 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 you know, Lincoln freed the slaves. And so you didn't know that 10% of the Union Army was comprised of black men. You didn't know that Harriet Tubman was actually a Union, Union operative who blew up a Confederate ammo dump. You didn't know that there were a series of revolts all along where people were demanding their freedom, fighting for their freedom. You know, so you had the Stono Rebellion in 1740 where they're like, oh, we're if we can get to Florida, we're going to be free because mm -hmm. Florida was Spanish territory. And the Spanish had made clear, Spain had made clear that you come here, you're free. We don't do slavery here. And so you have the Stono Rebellion and that sent shockwaves through South Carolina. I mean, they were like, oh my God. But this is where I talk about in my book, The Second, Race and Guns and a Fatally Unequal America, where you had the role of the militia. So we've got this idea of the militia as being this thing that was about fighting the British and stopping the British and fighting against domestic tyranny for the South. Really, the role of the militia was to put down slave revolts, to put down the quest for freedom of enslaved Africans. And 
Stono was key in that because they already had a law that all white men had to carry their guns with them. And Stono happened on a Sunday and the, the bell started ringing. The white men were in church and they picked up their guns that they had in church and went hunting these black people who were just trying to be free. And after that, then you get this law, the 1740 Negro Act, that basically says that African descended people are absolute slaves and that children born to slave mothers are born enslaved and that the status of a child comes through the mother and also defined black people, African descended people as inherently criminal, inherently violent, inherently dangerous, and basically an inherent threat to the white community, a threat that had to be contained and controlled. And so when you begin to think about so much of the language and the policies that we are dealing with now, the images and the depictions of black people, we have to look at that depiction in slavery and see how it comes through the timeline. You know, the that story, and then also the story that's in your book about the Fugitive Slave Act. I the need the story. The battle. I need the Battle of Christiana to be a movie because yes, yes. <laughs> the way yes. in which I, you know, I don't know if you know the person that actually read your book for Audible, but the way she's like, t- like telling the story, I was like on the train. I missed my whole stop. <laughs> I was like, "Ooh, are they gonna make it to? Are they gonna make it to his house in time?" Like, (laughs) I when when I came across that story and I'm reading the documents and I'm reading the reports, I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" And he was like, first of all, you come in my house, (laughs) okay, to come and get some, to come and get." My people, right? And I love that. You know, again, we have this language of black docility. But William Parker, you know, so when Edward Edward Gorsuch, who was the enslaver, comes to get what he called his property and using the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which required northern states to participate in slave catching and put a bounty on the heads of black folks. So even free black folk were 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 subjected to these slave catchers. And so when Edward Gorsuch comes up to Christiana, Pennsylvania from Maryland to get what he called his property, and he steps into Christiana, which was a community that had lots of fugitive slaves in it, but it was a self-defense community. And he steps on William Parker's doorstep with a U.S. Marshal behind him and his son and his nephew talking about, I've come to get my property. And William Parker looks at him and he's like, you see that chair over there? that's not yours. You see that table? That's not yours. You don't have any property here, old man. And and Gorsuch is just stunned by the audacity of this black man to talk to him that way. And Gorsuch is like, I've come to get my property. And Parker looks at him, he said, I'm gonna tell you what, old man, you come in this house, you go up those stairs, once you up here, you're mine. And then the self-defense community starts coming because William Parker's wife is ringing the alarm bell. 
and the U.S. Marshal takes off running for his life. But Gorsuch is like, I'm not leaving until I get mine. And it was like, as you wish. And Gorsuch dies. He is killed. His son and his nephew are wounded. Then it's like, okay, we just killed a white man and wounded two more and sent the U.S. Marshal running. So Parker and and the Gorsuch's, the, the people who ran away from Edward Gorsuch's plantation, they take off running to Frederick Douglass, going all the way up to New York. And Douglass, you know, they get to Douglass and Douglass is like, oh yeah, I heard. Okay, we got to get you out of the United States. And he gets them on the last ship with like 15 minutes to go, the last ship going up to Canada. And then Parker hands Frederick Douglass, Edward Gorsuch's gun. And Douglass calls it his prized possession. Meanwhile, they start holding a trial for some of the folk who were there in Christiana who fought against this, this its re-enslavement. And this is what I found so fascinating because that basic right to self-defense has been systematically denied to black folk. In this case, because the North hated the Fugitive Slave Act from the depths and the breaths and the heights that its soul shall reach, they hated it. They basically refused to, to abide by the law even when the law said you got to abide by it. So in this trial, where the folks are being charged with treason. So they're treating not obeying the Fugitive Slave Act as treasonous, as an assault on the US government itself. And as the trial is going on, the judge winds up saying, well, you know, you've got these folks coming up here and they are kidnapping even free blacks. They are ripping families apart. These folks are only trying to defend themselves against these kidnappers. And that's the judge's instructions to the jury. Wow. So no one was convicted, right? So that, and, and again, the strength and the courage and the defiance, the, the will to be free that you see in William Parker and the community in Christiana, that is a story I know must be told because again, we get this long narrative of black docility and how stuff is, how freedom was handed to black folk. No, mm -hmm. black folk fought for their freedom and we yeah. have to understand that. Well, I wanna take a break here because when we come back, I want to talk further about, cause I think you talk about it in two of your books, if not three, about the precedent that is set in court cases and law that basically prevent Black people from in having full enjoyment of citizenship in the country. Mm. And I wonder, going forward, right, like how do you move from that when you have this historic precedent of not affording Black people their rights in this country? which is my reason why you got to tear it all down. But, you know, we'll see what your view is when we come back with more Sunday <laughs> Civics. Who is the T-Shop? I will let you know. Who is the T-Shop? Welcome I back to Sunday Civics. I am with Professor Carol Anderson, the historian, author, professor, just, and she's, she's very funny. 
And I have to, I'm looking forward to my husband hearing this episode because she, like my husband, is a jukeboxer who <laughs> thinks of things in music and song titles <laughs> and lyrics. <laughs> All the time. All the time. <laughs> So, you know, before the break, you know, we were talking about, and I really do like, if, if I, if I had some money, like, I'd be like, here's $50 towards this Christiana movie. <laughs> like it really does need to be made. Right. But, you know, in your book on the second amendment, you talk a lot about the, the history of how legally by law, black people were restricted from enjoying the ability to protect themselves, their family, to be able to carry, right? It was it was all about restricting Black people from having the power to protect themselves and to carry weapons to protect themselves, whether it was during enslavement to the present. I think also in your books on voting, right, mm-hmm. talking about the various level of judicial precedent and legal precedent in restricting Black people access to the vote. And so when we think about a lot of these various issues, there is a lot of stacks upon stack of judicial and legal precedent of restricting not only black people, immigrants, so you know, but we just going to focus on black people right now, but like there's a whole precedent of restricting people that do not fit the very narrow citizen that this country was created for. And so just legally, it makes me think, like, if you have this historic precedent, how do we chart a new course for everybody to really in fully enjoy the rights of citizenship in the United States? How, how do you do that when you have Supreme Court precedent <laughs> saying otherwise? And, and it's multi-pronged. One of the things is that this is where the engagement of, of flexing the power that we do have is so important. We should never cede, C-E-D-E, our power. So let me tell you a couple of stories. It was the October 2016, and you remember, there was a key presidential election coming up. And I was giving a talk at the Schomburg on voting rights and voter suppression. The Schomburg in New York City. And after the talk, when we're in the Q&A session, young brother stands up and he's like, yo, sister, I hear you. But you know what? Trump and Hillary are just the same. And I went really all Amy Winehouse. No, no, no. Because I said, Hillary is a politician. You can get to her. Trump is a demagogue. You can't reach him. And I said, but even more than that, there are five or six folks who are knock knocking or already knocked past 70's door on the U.S. Supreme Court. He gets in. He's able to appoint up to five or six judges who will set the precedence for us that will be on top of us for the next hundred years. It will look like the Supreme Court that dismantled the rules and laws that were put in place after the Civil War, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the Enforcement Act, and the Force Acts. That Supreme Court gutted the legal architecture around Black citizenship. And it took another almost 100 years of battling, of fighting to get some of that back. 
That's what happens when we're not paying attention to the entire structure, when we're not paying attention to who are these judges? How are these judges appointed? How are these judges elected? Who are these judges? So we have to pay attention to these kind of down ballot races. We have to pay attention to the state judges. We have to pay attention. But the, the, the cost of liberty is eternal vigilance. The cost of our freedom is eternal engagement. And that requires that we engage, that we're paying attention to these key critical elections because these decisions that come down affect us. And so let me also give another story. So remember, Obama was elected in 2008. In 2010, there was this kind of growing dissatisfaction because he hadn't parted the Red Sea and walked on water. There were things that they wanted done that he didn't do. So many liberals stayed home. The conservatives didn't stay home. And they took over so many state houses and governorships that the laws that we are trying to, to fight against now, we're fighting a rear door action, a back door action, a rear guard action. That's the term, a rear guard action, because this is where you started seeing these voter suppression laws being put in place, voter ID laws, the gerrymandering to, to reduce, dilute the electoral power and the strength of black voters, of Latino voters, of Asian American voters of poor voters. This is where you saw the laws dealing with after the, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act of, of shutting down polling places overwhelmingly in poor and minority communities. This is where you saw new barriers being put up such as restricting early voting, limiting the number of places where early voting can happen. So when we didn't engage fully in 2010, we are now dealing with the consequences of that. This is where they're writing laws banning books, where they're writing laws banning healthcare for trans children, for trans people. This is where they are writing anti-LGBTQ laws. This is where they are writing these laws that affect our communities. We must engage. One of the things that my histories make clear is that when we engage, we don't always win that moment at that time, but we have moved the needle. We have moved the framework. We have moved the understanding of what recognizing our full humanity is. When we don't engage, really bad things happen. And quickly. <laughs> and quickly. With a quickness. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. And quickly, like, you know, there is, it's not as if people do that and, you know, they bide their time and wait for the right moment. No, like, you know, before they even plan, they swear an in ceremony. You know, they are already announcing the legislation and things or the budget they're not going to vote for that they're going to gut and that they're going to do. And you're right in terms of being, being vigilant. I was this past weekend, 
speaking on civics to the Jack and Jill teen conference. Mm -hmm. And a young woman gets up and she's like, you know, she's citing the UN Declaration of Human Rights and, you know, talking about the civil rights movement. She's like, it just seems that like we constantly have to like fight on this. And I was like, yes, yes, (laughs) yes. And you will have to when <laughs> you're mine and right. then your children will have to right. <laughs> then like there there is no end point and i told them partly because humans are assholes right like <laughs> <laughs> I would not say all humans are assholes. I I'm would... ta- I, well, listen, I'm saying humans TM. You know, okay. our trademark. As, <laughs> if, if you ask, you know, if you ask of the living things, yes. like what, like what is you, what are you, if you ask the trees, right? If you ask the animals, this is like the they're humans, like, they'd be like, like they, they assholes. Like, like, so you have to. And they make it bad for all of us, don't they? Right. <laughs> you now know, there and- might be. I'm, I'm not saying all. There, you know, some good. You know, some good ones who try to prevent the. You know, make it carbon neutral and all that kind of stuff. But for the, you know, the general populace. Yes. And, and 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 again, this is where our engagement is so important because there are folks who do value humanity, who do value, who believe in in the reality of climate change and the horrors that will rain down on us because of it. There are folks who do believe in voting rights and in democracy and that the, the, the most vibrant democracy is where you provide real access to the ballot box for all eligible American citizens. You know, so there are those folks. We have to get those folks in places of power where they can do the necessary work. We'll take a break and we'll be right back with more Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable Welcome back to Sunday Civics. So, you know, lastly, I hate to end on white rage, but, you know, it, <laughs> I have to bring this up yeah. because, again, being a student of history and knowing it's like, you know, being able to read the tea leaves is... You know, the point where your mama has told you over and over again, this is going to happen if you go and do this. And, you know, and so every time this is like we, we saw, you no, know, you know, my grandmother was still living. She was in her 90s. And, you know, she's like, this is great. But, you know, the white folks, <laughs> you know, they ain't going. And I'm like, grandma, not all white people. She's like, mm, like, she's like, I'm from North Carolina, girl. like, And I'm 92. Like, this is. <laughs> That's going to happen. There's going to be some backlash. There's going to be some, oh, not too far, you know, that that comes after this. And we were all celebratory and everything. But, you know, you know, would you say that Mr. L and M, they knew what was coming (laughs) because they had experienced it before. Right. And, you know, and so, you know, my white rage actually began when I was in my home office and I'm I'm looking at the news and Ferguson, Missouri is on fire because of the killing of Mike Brown. And the pundits, and it didn't matter which channel, you know, they were like, ooh, look at black folks burning up where they live. Who burns up where they live? Can you believe they're burning up where they live? And this was about that narrative of black pathology, that narrative of black rage. And I remember shaking my head so hard that you could see shoulder to shoulder to shoulder because I was like, this isn't black rage. This is white rage. And I went, oh, 
and, and then began writing because what was the historical pattern was that every time that there is a major advance in African-American citizenship rights, there is another major policy backlash to erode and undermine those rights. And so we often think of rage as the physical violence, but I looked at the bureaucratic violence. And so after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, wow, massive bureaucratic violence. And I had mentioned the way that the Supreme Court gutted the legal architecture of citizenship for African-Americans. After the Great Migration, whew, massive bureaucratic violence. After Brown, oh my God, incredible. We're, we're experiencing a little bit of that now, similar to <laughs> the Brown because of education. Right, you know, because it's like, how are you gaining access to education? How are you taking our slots? How are you going to be lowering the standards in our schools and, and, and treating Black children as if they're unworthy of being educated, that they don't deserve quality education? And, and so seeing that massive backlash called massive resistance after Brown, and then there was the civil rights movement. And the response to the civil rights movement was mass incarceration. And then there was the election of Barack Obama. And the response was massive voter suppression. Because, you know, one of the stories that became part of the mantra in 2008 was, wow, look at what we've done. We have crossed the racial Rubicon. We have overcome oh, did you see we put a black man in the White House? And there was all this kind of, wow, did you see what we just did? Well, what that was saying was that the majority of whites voted for Barack Obama and put him in the White House. That's not accurate. The majority of whites have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since 1964, when you had the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And so you might ask yourself, self, how is it that Obama got into the White House? Because he had an incredible ground game where he, his team, his organization was registering new folk to vote, people who had never been engaged before. They were overwhelmingly African-American, Asian-American, Latinos, young folk, and poor folk. Well, that would become the hit list for voter suppression. And the Supreme Court help that along in gutting the Voting Rights Act. And so in 2016, when you think about it, we had an array of Republicans who were running for office in that primary, like 15 of them or so. And then there was Trump. Trump had no experience, no governing experience, no policy experience, and he wasn't a successful businessman. He had none of that. What he had was a kilo of pure, uncut white supremacy that he put on the table and said, snort. That was birtherism. To deny the legitimacy of Barack Obama, to deny the American citizenship of Barack Obama, to cast him as the other. And then you had the Mexicans are rapists and criminals, build the wall. Then you had Muslims are terrorists. And, and, and this is what you saw happening. Trump was the white rage response to Barack Obama's presidency. 
then you had this incredible grassroots mobilization happening saying, oh my God, Trump is as bad as we thought he was. And so you get this grassroots mobilizing happening to get folks out to vote, to be able to put in some real guardrails, real protections in the system. The response to the 2000 election was another wave of white rage. So you begin to think about the big lie and and how it identifies the stolen election, the massive rampant voter fraud in predominantly black communities. When Newt Gingrich says they stole the election in Atlanta, they stole it in Philadelphia, they stole it in Milwaukee, He is identifying these urban areas, linking it with crime, linking it with the theft of American democracy, and linking it to the the stealing of something precious from hardworking white Americans. And so you get the insurrection on January 6th, where they're carrying the Confederate flag through the halls of the Capitol. And then you get right after that, That should have been chastening, like, oh my God, that was an attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. That was an attempt to overthrow the will of the voters, the majority of the voters. Instead, what you get are state after state after state passing one voter suppression law after the next, saying we can't have all of those folks voting again. So we know it's a pattern. We know we must organize. We know we must mobilize. And we know we must stay eternally vigilant. Absolutely. And even though, you know, organizing, you know, amongst white folks who traffic in, you know, the hate and putting everybody, that's not my ministry. There's, you know, other people. But at some point, y'all have to look and think about yourself. Like, why are we continuing to fall for the trap of being used that, you know, somehow someone else gaining rights, having the freedoms and the everything that we enjoy somehow takes away something from me. Right. Right. And, you know, you can see, I mean, again, as you mentioned, the history of white rage is also using middle class, you know, working class whites and poor whites who have more in common, (laughs) you know, with other populations in terms of how they're being put down in terms of classism, you know, but consistently, you know, here comes somebody wealthy, here comes somebody with more power using race as a way to divide and they fall for it every time. Right. And, and, and ain't y'all tired of falling for the banana in the tailpipe? <laughs> and so you know, and so you know that Lord have mercy. And so you know <laughs> that, you know, when you look at those areas, like the areas that had massive Jim Crow, that had in the 42 election a three percent voter turnout rate. So not only were black folks suppressed from voting, but you had white folks who just knew that they they couldn't vote either, right? So when you have political leadership that rely, only has to rely upon 3% of the voting population, then you get the policies that are resonant with those 3%. And when you begin to think about the healthcare statistics in those states, you begin to think about the life expectancy, the maternal mortality rates, the income rates, the educational attainment rates. White supremacy is corrosive. It does damage to everybody. And so part of my work is making that visible, making that clear that while the attack is on Black folk, it is radiating out and it is 
hitting everyone. For example, that war on drugs, we spent a trillion dollars, that is with a capital T, locking up most folks who do and sell drugs the least. Because the studies are clear, African-Americans use drugs the least, sell drugs the least. The only place where it is equal is marijuana. So you have to ask yourself, self, what kind of sense does it make to lock up most folks who do drugs the least? And then you have to ask yourself, what could we have done with a trillion dollars? Wow, could you see college becoming affordable? Could you see massive investment in K through 12? Could you see massive investment in making more fully available access to quality, affordable healthcare? Could you see having roads that actually don't have potholes in them? What could we have done with a trillion dollars? That's the impact of white rage. See, this is why I don't believe folks when they be talking about they conservative and believe in, you know, financial whatever. Cause I'm like, it's more like, it's more the, the cost benefit of actually getting somebody in treatment and like us, you know, investing in healthcare and treatment. Like we save money this way. You ain't no real conservative. Cause if you were <laughs> real conservative, like it make more sense to invest my money here to prevent from spending more money in these other places. It makes more money. It makes more sense for me to invest in education opportunities and youth engagement than to pay for them to eventually be in the criminal justice system where I got to pay more money for them. Oh, but you're making money off of them being in it. So that, that's the, oh, that's the, I, I, I get it. <laughs> but again, it is so, it. it's so short-sighted because that investment now means that you've got folks who are tax paying out in the workforce instead of absorbing the resources that then go to limited communities where these prison facilities are. It means that, you know, but I, again, I think about the ways that there's a, a law professor out of Berkeley, Jonathan Simon, who wrote a book, Governing Through Crime. And he talked about the ways that politicians deploy the language of crime, crime, crime in order to feed the beast, in order to, to maintain political power, in order to demonize minority communities and particularly African-American communities. And we see that consistently. And you see the media that has a, a, a mantra of if it bleeds, it leads falling into that. So we saw that in the 2022 election where there was this hype about crime, crime, crime. You know, New York City was burning. Atlanta was burning. And think about how, you know, you're looking going, what, what? You know, burning, burning, burning. And then after the 2022 election, then you have this mea culpa, this, oh, we're so sorry. Oops, we kind of missed this. Oops, we kind of blew up this story that really wasn't a real story coming in from mainstream media going, you know, the crime stats that we were citing, they weren't really accurate. And the depth of crime that we were talking about wasn't really going on. But, you know, they haven't learned from that because the next time that the language comes in, crime, crime, crime. This stuff is blowing up. Cities are blowing up. People aren't safe in their homes. Boom. We don't learn. <laughs> we don't <laughs> learn. 
but we keep trying the same thing. Professor Anderson, I I could talk to you all day, but I want (laughs) to... Thank you so much for taking an opportunity to come and to talk about all of this. And I'm sure you have about 5011. That's, you know, black math, 5011 other books uh, <laughs> that you have in your head that we cannot wait to read and to engage with. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. We'll be back next Sunday with more conversations <laughs> and more civic lessons that you can use to take civic action. Have a great one. Oh, it's cool.